is uh, it's kind of a summary of what's happened for the last few weeks. And Peter is giving some final kind of exhortations to these churches and the, and the Christians within these churches. And so we're going to read tonight First uh, Peter 3, uh, 8 through 18, and then we'll talk about it for a little bit. And then afterward, I think I've got uh, on the one past this, my phone number will be up there. No, it won't. Uh, if you have my phone number, great. Uh, you can text me questions that you may have about what we're talking about tonight, and I'll try to answer them afterward, kind of like we did last week. So we'll begin in verse 8. It's up on the screen or in the Bible, probably 647 or something like that. 657? Yeah, 657. Um, or on your phone, whatever. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let's read it together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from seeking, speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the, right, are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is God's word. Let me uh, pray before we consider it together. God in heaven, you know it's, uh, it's a miracle not that I'm a pastor, but that I'm a Christian, um, because... You and I both know the, the sheer amount and volume of sin that I bring to the table. So I thank you that Jesus' blood um, was sufficient for that. Lord, there are many here tonight who likewise uh, feel the weight of sin, um, who don't really know what to make of their lives but know that something is missing, know that they are uneasy in some way. Lord, there are some here who are doing well, and we praise you for that. We pray that you would continue to be at work in their hearts and lives. And there are some here, Lord, who don't know you, and I pray that you would come and meet them in a very unique way. That through this time and looking at your word and talking about it, that we might all uh, be encouraged, challenged, um, and brought to Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well... This is, a, is an interesting passage to, to talk through and to preach through because it starts out, and, and you probably noticed this when we were reading, for the first about nine verses from 8 through 17, it's just these command, it's a command after command. So do this, do this, do this, be this way, don't be this way, uh, respond this way, don't respond this way, and all this stuff. And I don't know if you've ever uh, had a group that you really belong to. 
um, where you really felt like that you were a part of it. Maybe it was some sort of prestigious club in high school or maybe even here in college. Or maybe it was a country club that your family belonged to, uh, that y'all had you know, paid the dues and you were a part of it. You were in. And there's a real sense of, of belonging and of satisfaction when you do what's required to be in, right? When you pay the dues or you've, you know, worked X amount of service hours or uh, you made the grades that maybe you need to get into honor society or something. And there's a real sense of belonging, a sense of, uh, of pride of being there. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, has an illustration about what he calls the inner ring. That this thing that, um, it's, it's kind of, that even if you're a part of something, there's always like a group within the group. It's kind of the ultimate, like, inner, inner circle or inner ring, he calls it. And even when you belong, there's a sense of wanting to belong more. I want to be inside that group. I want to uh, jump to the next level of that. And I think when we look at the Bible, um, particularly passages like this, and really any time when you sit down and, and look at the Bible, if you do that at all, and you see these kind of all these commands and these things that just say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, the temptation... There are several things that tend to that point. One, one, uh, some of you may look at it and say, no thanks, I, I don't really want to do that. Some of you may say, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to start doing the list. I'm going to start working it. I'm going to get busy. Because I want to be like Jesus. Well, that, when that moment happens, you begin to kind of elevate yourself, whether or not you intend to or not, into this sort of inner ring. That by doing, that you begin to belong. Or by doing better and by doing more, you begin to kind of super belong, right? Join the, the upper echelon of that crowd. And I would say there's a real uh, a danger in that. There's Certainly we look at the Bible and say, well, what do we do with the commandments then? Because the Bible has a lot of things, tells us to do a lot of things, so what do we do with that? Um, there's a danger in that, and we're going to talk about it. But I want to suggest that if you're ever going to be like Jesus, and if you're ever going to have your life show forth something of His goodness to the people around you, then there is a necessary first step that must take place first. You have to be with Jesus before you can be like Jesus. Okay? You have to be with Jesus before you can be like Jesus. But we're going to talk about being like Jesus first. Um, because that's how the passage lays it out for us. So as you look at this very beginning, um, he starts out, Peter starts out by saying, finally. And what he's doing by that, that little conjunction right there, he's connecting what we're talking about tonight with what's been happening for the last several weeks when he's kind of in this scenario and he's talking to people about, even in the midst of suffering, bear up under that. And don't give in and don't crack and don't take revenge on the people who are, who are causing this suffering. But bear up in that. And when you do that, you show forth something the nature of God. Something the nature of who God is and what He has done. And so, uh, what Peter does is he's continuing to tell us that the way that we live matters. The way that we live matters. And the first thing he talks about tonight in saying, be like Jesus, do this, is he's saying you have to love your fellow Christians. And he's writing us to people in this, uh, in this book who are Christians. Right? I understand that all of you not, aren't Christians. That's okay. But Peter's saying if you're going to be like Jesus and you're going to be kind of live the biblical standard, you have to love the fellow Christians. You have to love those around you. Um, let's read verse 8 again. If you don't have it out, that's fine. But he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble, and humble mind. 
Um, he doesn't explicitly say love your fellow Christians, but when he starts talking about brotherly love and using this tender heart language, uh, the way that's set up in there indicates that he's saying, look, have peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Live at peace with those among you. And so if we read this and kind of see this list of things we have to do to have unity of mind and a tender heart, all these things, there's a real temptation to just kind of say, Okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm just going to grind it out. I'm going to be better at being of one, with, of one mind with those people around me. And I'm going to be better at having a tender heart. I'm going to love my brothers and sister in Christ more than I have. And I'm going to do this better, and I'm going to be humble. And then you wake up from your prayer, or open your eyes from your prayer, and your roommate says or does something that really pisses you off. And in your mind, you, well, you, in your mouth, you, you say something to them. In your mind, you're already thinking, I hate that person. I'm so much better than them because I wouldn't have said them. all these things. In like two seconds after you just really rededicated your life to Jesus, you've already broken the whole list of things you've got to do. It's like, dang it, I can't do this. And that's exactly it. That whenever we come to these things and we're like, okay, now's the time that I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to be better and I'm going to do better at this list. When we make... That our mark of, of progression in the Christian life, then we're going to fail. Now, should you strive for it? Yes. And we're going to talk about how that plays in just a little bit. But there's that moment where it's just not enough to kind of recalibrate your desire and your affections and just say, I'm just going to start over. There's not, you're not good enough, and your will and your volitional strength is not strong enough. Just to make that happen on your own. Um, <clears throat> there's a frustration with us uh, many times, if you're a Christian, with the church. With any time Christians kind of, or, or in a group like RUF, we're not a church, um, but we're uh, kind of function as an arm of the church. Anytime you have a bunch of Christians that get together, particularly if you're trying to accomplish some sort of task or goal, it can be very frustrating. I don't know if you've known this, but churches have split, literally have split over paint colors in the nursery. Um, and they've certainly split over things that you should, that are more worthy of dividing a church with, but can split over crazy things. And people get so mad that they just want to leave. And that would seem to be in pretty distinct uh, opposition to what Peter's talking about here. And what happens in those moments and what happens in our hearts whenever we get together with people and things aren't working well and we're frustrated is that what we really think is, I wish this group of people were just more like me. <laughs> if this was a whole group of bees, then, yeah, it would be a lot easier to get things done and we'd do it a lot better and um, we'd probably be better at liking people. And, and that's just part of what happens when we walk into a group. I actually, um, when my wife and I were in premarital counseling, I saw this very clearly. I had finished, pastors and people who do premarital counseling love it when you fight because that means you actually have stuff to talk about in the sessions. And so Sarah and I had had some sort of argument about something probably when we went to Bed Bath & Beyond and spent nine hours because I realized that I actually cared about stuff I shouldn't care about. And anyway, we went to, uh, to the pastor and we were sitting there talking and, and he said, he looked at me very plainly and said, Brent, your biggest, pro your biggest problem in this deal is that you're, you're wishing Sarah was you with long hair. <laughs> and um, it was kind of funny. I was like, yeah. Uh, and it just like kind of fell upon me. He was like, oh, my gosh, he's right. 
he's right. Like, I just kind of hope that I'm marrying someone who's just like me so that I don't have to disagree with anything and she will just always get along with me and we won't have any problems or strife or anything. Oh, gosh, that didn't work. Um, (laughs) But the point is this, is that living with people, even who you have big things in common with, is very difficult. It's very difficult. There's strife. There's high tension. There's feelings. But what we're called to do is to apologize to each other and to move toward each other in repentance. And by that, I mean saying you're sorry and and looking at what you've done wrong and saying, I don't want to be that way anymore. And resolving to change. The very thing that Peter is calling us to do here. Well, Jesus did all of these things. He perfectly loved those around Him. He strove for unity and He wanted His disciples and those who followed Him to be of like mind. He prayed for it in His, what's called the great high priestly prayer, in His huge long prayer in John 17. He prays that the Christians would be of one mind. Jesus Himself had a tender heart. He cared for others. Good grief, He laid down His life for people. He was humble. And so Jesus is the standard in flesh. And so, it's easy, right? Just be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus, that's all. Well, there's a second thing that Peter talks about here. He kind of moves into this next section in verses 9 through 12, and I'm not going to reread it. It's kind of what we talked about the last few weeks. And he says that part of being like Jesus and living up to this standard is you're called to lay down your life for others in humility. To lay down your life. Peter was calling these Christian readers to lay down their what may have been considered their rights for the sake of other people and of the gospel going forward. That even when they might have been justified to to walk out of a situation, he said, no, stay in it. And we talked about how to apply that in our day. Um, But we're supposed to lay down, we're supposed to remain humble in the midst of things falling in all around us. I don't know what you think about Tim Tebow. I think a lot of things about Tim Tebow. Uh, most of them are just have surely to do with my man crush on him. Uh, he really, he's not Jesus, for the record, um, just so we're clear on that. Uh, but he, he does a lot of really great things, and kind of unapologetically, he does a lot of things that are to be, to be commended. Uh, one of the things that happened this last fall is uh, Jake Plummer, who is a former quarterback for the Denver Broncos, was, taken in, uh, was given this interview, and, and he said, you know, I just wish that uh, Tebow would curb his references to Jesus Christ. Um, because it, whether or not you know Tim Tebow, every time he's given an interview, every time he's given a chance to do or say anything at all, he always talks about Jesus Christ and his love for Jesus. And Plummer was kind of giving him some junk and saying, like, look, man, we get it. You like Jesus. We kind of know that already. And, uh, you know, the media was wanting to make a big frenzy of this, trying to just pin Tebow and to get him to say something mean. Of course he didn't. He said this. If you're married and you have a wife and you really love your wife, it's good, is it good enough to only tell your wife, I love her the day you get married? Or should you tell her every single day when you wake up and every opportunity? And that's how it works, because Christ comes first in my life and then my family and then my teammates. And then he turns and says this. Doesn't have to say this at all. He says, you know, I respect Jake's opinion, and I really appreciate his compliment of calling me a winner. Plummer had, like, belittled Tebow and was giving him a hard time, but I guess somewhere in there made some comment about Tebow being a winner. You know, he's a good player. Tim doesn't, he really doesn't even address 
what the media is obviously wanting him to address. And he looks and says, man, I really, that was kind of Jake to pay me that compliment and call me a winner. And just kind of sidesteps the issue. Um, and this kind of makes me love him and hate him. <laughs> and I think if you're honest, people like this, we don't really know what to do with them because it's an, a little bit annoying. When you're around people who just always do it right, and they're just always saying the right things, and they're always responding the right way. And we, we see this so seldomly that like, I had to go pick on Tim Tebow. I don't know him that well. I mean, you know, we text every now and then. But um, <laughs> it's, so, it's so not ordinary, but it still annoys me. Like, why do I want him to be brought down? Like, I just want something bad to happen, and that's sinful. Like, that is something wrong with me, not him. And I think what it is, is that when we get in the presence of humility, of something that closely resembles Jesus' likeness and all, that we just start to feel kind of dirty. Because we start to know, we start to sense that I'm not like that. I should be. I know that I should be, but I'm not. Humility is a great idea, and laying down your life for others is a really great idea until you realize that it costs something. Until you realize there's a price to pay for it to be had. And it can't come just by resolving to do better. And by saying, you know what? I am going to be humble today. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be like Tim Tebow today. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> um, I have a friend. Uh, he's actually the campus minister at Oklahoma State who does what I does. Does what I does. I speak for a living. Um, he was telling me this story about a guy named Paul Koistra, who is uh, the, our denominational coordinator for our, the mission agency of the Presbyterian Church in America, since you were wondering. And um, he was telling a story about Paul Koistra, a, a humble man, a doctor who then went to the mission field and now uh, travels around raising money for different missionaries and stuff. Anyway, he was speaking at this church in Mississippi and had just finished kind of this very passionate, emotion-filled filled sermon and, and concluded that sermon with an illustration about his wife who is suffering and struggling through cancer. And my friend, uh, and I mean, the congregation was very emotional, very choked up by this and very touched by the story. Um, and afterward, my friend was going up to stay in line to tell uh, Dr. Koistra thanks for coming and for being part of this mission conference and different things. And um, before, actually right before my friend got up there, this... Uh, older man in the church jumped in front of him and said, um, you know, when you come to preach at a, shirt, at a church, you really should wear a tie. And my friend said, thankfully his wife saw like the red flash go, go into his eyes before he got himself fired from this church by cussing out this older man. Um, he said, thankfully my wife saw that because I was about to jump on him and pounce on him. Because Dr. Koister had was still emotional about what he had just talked about. And everyone in there was. And this guy had the audacity to come up in the face of this and, and say that. And he said, but it wasn't that. He said, it wasn't my reaction that I even want to tell you about. He said, what was most shocking is what Koister said to him. He turned around. And, the, and he had on a coat and a shirt, just not a tie. And Dr. Koister turned around and said, yes, sir, you're right. And I'll have one on for tomorrow. I'm sorry. Um, I wouldn't have done that. 
I would not have said that. I don't know what I would have said, but I don't think it would have been that. If this man's love for Jesus and his knowledge of what Jesus had done for him had done something profoundly, deeply moving in him, it changed him from the inside out. You can't resolve to do things like that. You can't resolve to be that way. It's just not something you do and look and say, I'm just going to go be like Jesus. That's all. I'm just going to go be like Jesus. I'm just going to kind of pull it together and do this. Well, thirdly, in this little section, we see that Peter tells these people that they need to live uh, exemplary lives everywhere. And this is in verse 13 through 17. And he opens this with this rhetorical question in verse 13 and says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right? Who would ever want to harm you when you just go out and do good things? Well, I would because when Tim Tebow shows up on the news, I want him to die. <laughs> I want him to do something really wrong and mess up. And Peter's asking this rhetorical question because he's already talked to them about, look, people are going to want to do things to you that are not right even when you do good. That's what sin does in us. It, make, it manifests in this way. Verse 15, he goes down he says, look, even if you do suffer, don't be troubled or afraid. Honor Jesus as holy and be prepared to defend why you are so hopeful amidst life being so bad. And oh yeah, do this with gentleness and respect. Does that feel kind of impossible a little bit? That feels really hard to me. And I've looked at this verse a lot and I've talked with a lot of y'all about it. That, you know, we just think that people are going to come up to us and just say, you know what, you have something that I don't have. And that actually does happen. Right? Christians, sometimes you just see it in people's face and there's a joy there that you really can't express any other way. And it, it causes you to ask. Or it causes someone perhaps to ask of you. And Peter's saying, look, there's a difficulty here when those who are around you start to question. There's a difficulty that in doing this with gentleness and respect. That pride is always lurking. That the temptation to want to beat people down, even in our, uh, some of us in being Christians, is there. That he has to call us and remind us, look, treat people with gentleness and respect. Just be like Jesus. That's all. It's easy. Just go do that. Well, seeing this list and seeing Jesus, we then kind of need to take a step back and look at ourselves a little bit. And say, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing it at loving the Christians around you, your brothers and sisters? How are you doing at, I don't know, uh, living an exemplary life and laying yourself down in humility before others? Does that become pretty easy for you? Yeah, me too. (laughs) How are you doing at just living this great exemplary life out in the world that people just want to run up to you and be just like you? The truth is that when we hold up Jesus as the standard of what Peter is calling us to and what the Bible is doing whenever it gives any commands, when you see the standard as perfection, we realize that we fall well short. And that's just it. We don't live up to that. I don't do this well. Oh my gosh, I don't do this well. I hope you never think that about me. I fall so short of this in so many ways. But there's three responses. 
none of us can, can, can ignore it. None of us are perfect. We don't measure up to the just be like Jesus thing. That doesn't work. So there's three ways we respond to this. One way is by rebellion. And by looking and saying, you know, this is stupid. I'm not perfect. I'm not going to do this. This game is futile. And maybe some of you have actually kind of done this. You, you tried it maybe for a while, but you got burnt out. And I would suggest that some of you in here are even angry at God, perhaps, because you look at it, and you look at the way that this thing was kind of set up. And you look at it and say, you know what? I inherited sin. I got something from Adam and Eve. It wasn't even something that I got a choice to do. This is kind of a crappy deal. God, what's, what's the deal here? And you, and, you, and you react against this in rebellion. Some of you, though, look at this standard and have a very different response. And you'll, you have what I'll call a religious response to it. And what you look at it and you say, you know what? That's right. Jesus is the standard, and I just need to be more like Him. And I just need to do better, and I need to try harder, and I need to resolve to just go out and do this, and to do it well, or to try better. Or at least, I need to try better and do better than the people around me so that I can feel good about myself, and so I can look at God and say, look God, I'm at least better than they are, you owe me something. I'm not like those people. But there's a third response. There's a third way. It's something completely different. It's so much different from just being religious that we have to give it its own special name. It's called the gospel. It's something that is wholly different from just being moral or just resolving to be like Jesus. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of Christianity. It's just, I'm just going to go be like Jesus. The Bible does not lead with that. In verse 18, we're going to flesh this out, but what verse 18 is saying is that it's not simply enough to be like Jesus, because we can't. We can't get there. That we have to be with Jesus. We have to be with Jesus. That the Bible puts a primacy on being with Jesus over doing things for Jesus. That there's a, there's a, a relational component there. There's a, a proximity component that we have to be with Him before we can ever rightly be like Him and mirror what He does and the things that He is doing in us in any way. We have to align ourselves with Him. We have to receive the grace that, we ha- that He offers. We have to be brought in before we ever try to be like Him. And the way that this flows out in verse 18, well, let me back up for a sec. Jesus' life isn't just an example of what we should do or what we should follow. Jesus' life and death accomplishes something for us. It actually accomplishes something. It's not just like, well, here's the standard, go do it. It is that. But it's something else. That when Jesus lives a perfect life and when He dies this death that He didn't deserve, there's something actually happening there. He accomplishes redemption in that process. And verse 18 here talks about how exactly that works. How exactly redemption plays out. 
And so we're going to look at, there's three things about the, rena- the nature of redemption and what it does for us. And the first is this, is it tells us that redemption is final. And it does this by saying that Christ suffered, or the, the word there really means died. He died once for sins. And this means this, that when Jesus died on the cross, that that was the only death necessary to pay for my lifetime of sin. That that was the only death necessary to pay for everything you've ever done, thought, not done, or not thought, or whatever. That that death on the cross was sufficient. It was a one-time death. You can't out the cross. It is enough. It is sufficient. It is final. And this is why Jesus on the cross looks up and says, It is finished. That there's no more death, no more punishment that has to take place for sin. God is not mad at you for the sins that you will commit tomorrow. They have already been paid for on the cross. And so when you sin or when you go and take communion or any of these things that kind of picture and you ask for forgiveness when you sin, any of these things that call into mind what Jesus has done, you're not re-killing Him. You're not re-crucifying Him. It's been done. It's finished. It's paid for. It's, it's done. It's final. Redemption is final. But redemption is also legal. It's also judicial. That there's something going on in this transaction when Jesus dies. And then we see this when, when Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. And those are very fancy words for basically that means that you're in right standing with God or you're not. Think about it like this. You go out on a big shopping spree this weekend down to Utica Square. Or actually to Woodland Hills because the new iPad's about to be out. And... Um, <coughs> If the announcement's tomorrow, it's going to be out sometime. Anyway, not that I'm keeping track. And um, you go out there and you take your debit card and, and you rack up all these huge expenses. And, and you don't know it, or maybe you do know it, but you don't have sufficient funds to pay for this. And so you're getting all these emails simultaneously saying, no, you know, NSF, all this stuff's hitting, but you've, you're bracking up these charges. Now, if someone comes or, or you go and talk to the bank, you know, by this point they're calling you on the phone like, dude, what's the deal? Are you there? Or is this like somebody frauding you? Like, no, I'm here. I just have 17 iPads and a new iPhone. Um, and the, you're talking to him about it and you say, look, will you, just, will you just wipe it clean this once? And they say, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll do that. You're going to be ecstatic. Right? You're going to be thrilled that they're just like, okay, all right, good, I've... I've got 17 iPads, a new iPhone, and I'm not paying for any of this. This is awesome. Some of you might think that that's what the Christian life is like. That when Jesus dies for your sin, it's paid for. You're back to square one. And now you just need to go be like Jesus the rest of your life. And to go kind of earn, earn your own goodness. What actually happens, and what he is talking about here, the righteous for the unrighteous means that you've racked up a lifetime of debt. And you call the banker and say, <laughs> pardon, he's calling you and saying, uh, l- listen, you've got these charges here. Uh, what are you going to do about this? And you say, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm a student. I work in the computer lab. Uh, I don't make enough money there in a lifetime to pay for what I've got in the bank or don't have in the bank right now. The maker says, 
it's okay, the richest man in the world just uh, emptied his bank account and put it into yours. Okay, cool. That's great. Thank, could you tell him thanks for me? You see, um, you wouldn't be ecstatic if that happened to you. You would be changed. You would be foundationally changed because something inestimably good has just happened to you. You have been given the credit of the richest person in the world where you deserved nothing. You deserved punishment. And that's what happens for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that we get Christ's righteousness. That's what happens in the gospel. Um, And what this means very practically is that when God looks at you, if you trust in Christ and you believe that He took your sin and all that stuff, when God looks at you, He sees you as His son. He sees you as a daughter who did everything right. He does not see your sin or the sins you'll commit tomorrow or the ones that you'll do next year. He looks at you and sees His perfect Son. And that account, your account is infinitely positive in His eyes. You lived life right. You were like Jesus. That's how He sees you. Though you know that wasn't true of you. So what's our response? We're changed. The only response to that is that we're changed. That affects us deeply. It gets into our heart in a way that nothing else could. In a way that just saying, you know what, I'm just going to go be better. That that will never even sniff the kind of change that happens if it's done for you. But finally tonight, and perhaps most beautifully, that redemption is relational. He says the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. To bring us to God. You see, what we functionally think most of the time is that our biggest problem in life is is that I'm not blank enough. That I'm not smart enough. Or that I'm not good enough. Or that I'm not pretty enough. Or I'm not uh, kind enough. Or whatever these things are. Whatever you look at your life and you can honestly say, if I could change this one thing about me, this is what it would be. That, those things define us. And they control our lives. But we fail to realize that the biggest problem that we actually have in life is that we're separated from God naturally. That we're not right with God. That there's a chasm there. There's a separation there because of sin. And God, if He has been kind to you, and you have asked Him, God, I want to figure this out. I want to see how this works. And maybe He has begun putting this in you, that that life is empty. And that the things that we do out in this world, just kind of on our own, don't really fill us. Then there's that instinct to say, I just need to go do better, God. I'm sorry. I need to go kind of get these things together. And he says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And that would look this way. If you try it that way, it looks like this. Last June, um, I went to an Oklahoma City Thunder playoff game with my little brother in Oklahoma City. Um, he makes more money than I do, and so he gets tickets to these awesome things. And he invited me. It was great. And they were playing the Mavericks, and uh, we came out just hotter than a pistol and faded off. That I'm, I digress. Um, but what happened is we, we got, I mean, so he got seats, but they were like way up there, nosebleeding the whole deal. But it was still cool. 
But what started happening is we started saying, no, I want to get closer. And so we, you know, we'd see this pocket of empty seats, and it, after the first quarter, we moved down to, like, the next to the highest row. And we're like, okay, cool. And then we see these other ones open up across the way that are down a little bit lower. And by the end of the game, we're sitting about ten rows up behind the goal, and it was awesome. It was great. But here's what happened. <laughs> um, we were always wondering if someone was going to find out. Right? We're always kind of like, yay! Okay, he didn't see us. You know, uh, we're always kind of nervous, sitting there wondering, is this going to work? So here's what happens if you try to kind of perform for God. This is what it feels like. That you're always wondering, when is God going to really find out about me? When is my cover going to be blown and the people around me are going to find out that I'm really not this person that I say I am? You know, when am I going to be found out to be the poser that I am? Just maybe kind of acting together on Tuesday nights at RUF or maybe at church or when I'm in front of this crowd or that crowd. Are you nervous in your relationship with God? Are you kind of thinking that He's just looking over your shoulder, kind of waiting for you to screw up so He can get you? I want to tell you, That if your relationship with God consists of what you're doing for God and how well you're doing it, that is why you feel that way. That you're trying to just go out and be like Jesus. That you've, whether or not you've known it or consciously made a decision, you've jumped onto this thing called moralism and legalism. Which, friends, I've been there. I spent so many years of my life there and I struggle with it still. It's kind of a default for me. I just get on that treadmill and I start going and I start going and what you learn if you've been on it for any time is that there's, there's no off button. You have to keep performing in order to keep the feelings up, in order to keep your identity and your, uh, all this kind of together. But there's a better way, there's a different way. And it's called the gospel and it looks this way. Um, uh, when was it? Christmas, at Christmas, we were in, in Louisiana. My wife's family's from Louisiana. And uh, we have a brother-in-law who played football for LSU. And we were there uh, at LSU Stadium outside of it. Actually, they have a, their mascot is a tiger, and they have a live tiger, which is massive. And we were out there playing with it, and our kids were all having fun with it. And um, all of a sudden, I get this phone call from Henry, who's this brother-in-law, and says, Hey, come over here to the stadium. And I said, What? Uh, it's December. LSU's about to play the national championship game in January. So he's like, no, come over here. I'm getting us in. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, come over here. And I looked over there, and he's waving. See, Henry played football at LSU. And he knew the guy who ran the equipment room who had the keys to the whole stadium. And so I'm just, I'm freaking out as we go over there. And Henry ushers us into the locker room and the equipment room. Like, I'm seeing the uniforms laid out. So if you're not a football fan, this sounds ridiculous. You're like, it was a uniform. Like, I know, but they were about to be played. You know, it's kind of a big deal. Um, And so it's awesome. I'm seeing the trophies. I'm in the locker room seeing all this stuff. I go out onto the field. It was amazing. And I'll tell you what happened. I enjoyed it. I could. I liked being there because I belonged. Because Henry stood at the door and said, He's with me. He's here with me. He belongs here. Friends, when you're with Jesus, you don't have to be scared to be in God's presence. 
Because Jesus has gone before you. He went to the cross and through faith, as you place faith in Him and what He did to take your sin and to give you His righteousness, what He is saying before God is, it's okay, she's with me. He's with me. And so I simply want to ask you, what is it like when you think about God? Are you scared? Are you nervous? Or are you confident? Are you assured? Are you at peace in your heart? Do you find rest? Knowing that you're with Him. It's okay. You belong now. You're a part of this. I tell you what, I, I was kind of an LSU fan before that because my wife is. I walked out of there and I wanted them to win. I had tasted something of what was happening. And I wanted them to win. Look, perhaps you've had this whole thing mixed up your whole life. That's okay. Jesus is holding the door open for you right now. And He's saying, you want to come in? You can come in. You're with me. But you've got to be with me. You can't come in on your own. But I'll let you in. Friends, are you with Jesus? Let's pray.